This is an ABC podcast. Thirst traps. What are your thoughts? Are you feeling parched or are you fully hydrated? Because we're seeing more and more of them coming from guys. So what is behind the rise in male thirst traps? Hey, it's Dave Marchese with you for the Hack Podcast. Later, you're going to hear from people who are really embracing this social media culture. We're also going to be talking about young farmers. It's not related, though. It's not young farmers doing thirst traps, although they're out there as well. We're talking about succession planning and the decision that needs to be made if you're going to stay on the land or maybe leave your family business and do something else. It's a really difficult conversation. We're going to be getting into that soon, but first. Hack. The process here of tracking down these individuals through their family trees could potentially reunite them with their family, bring, bring them home. On Triple J. How would you feel about helping to solve a serious crime or mystery without really doing anything at all? A decades-old mystery, like a grisly murder, assault, or even helping to identify human remains. Because you can potentially help out with all of this just through DNA. And a lot of you have probably already given away your DNA by signing up to ancestry tests. You know, the ones that help you figure out where your ancient relatives came from and they help you build a family tree. All around the world, police are using that data to solve crimes. And soon it could be happening here in Australia too. April McLennan explains... For 30 years now, the identity of the man buried here, in Adelaide, has remained a mystery. At first, his death aroused little interest. Later, it was to become one of Australia's most baffling cases. There were two questions. Who was he and how did he die? It was in the year of 1948 when the body of a well-dressed man was found on Adelaide's Somerton Beach. Police thought someone would come forward to identify him, but when nobody did, he was nicknamed the Somerton Man. It's a case that's long baffled detectives and amateur sleuths, especially because there were a few strange clues. He had a book of Persian poems and a book that many thought was in code. Was he murdered? Was he a spy? Was it suicide? Or was he the victim of a love triangle? Earlier this year, more than 70 years after the body of the smartly dressed man was found on an Adelaide beach, he was finally exhumed. Detectives hope DNA testing will solve one of the country's most intriguing mysteries. While South Australia police were working hard to crack the case, a researcher from the University of Adelaide, Professor Derek Abbott, had been doing his own investigation. He used hairs from a plaster bust of the man to gather DNA evidence. Then the team used popular DNA databases like Ancestry.com to find distant relatives of the Somerton man. Through this research, they believe they've solved the decades-old mystery, identifying the man as Carl Charles Webb, a 43-year-old engineer and instrument maker. And while it's super exciting that they've likely cracked the case, it made me think, if I'm trying to do my ancestry online by sending in a DNA test, who actually has access to my DNA? Like, where does it go? So you send your DNA off on your swab and make sure that you understand that your data is not necessarily going to sit in Australia. It will go somewhere and sit in a database around the world. Might be open to different kind of laws from different countries where the organisation is. That's Dr Sally Kelty. She's a research psychologist at the University of Canberra. Along with two of her colleagues, Sally's been conducting an international study with over 400 adults from Australia, Europe and the United States. 
They're trying to figure out how supportive the public are of police using DNA databases from private ancestry companies to help them solve crimes. And were people more supportive of this information being accessed for some crimes over others? 83.2% of our sample were really highly supportive of the police going in, private companies, as a last resort to see if they can actually use family trees to find their suspects. For sexual assault cases, 83.5. For human remains, even higher, 85.2. But what we found was that for robbery, it was only it dropped drastically down to 62.8. And for illicit drug use, um, 58.9. Sally says this technique's been used to solve hundreds of cases in America. A very famous case in the US of a, a cold case, a guy called Joseph D'Angelo, who had committed 50 rapes, 13 murders, and it had been cold for a long time. And they found him actually by 20 of his relatives who had gone through family DNA testing. That case would never have been solved had it not been for forensic genetic genealogy. While this is all super interesting, our police in Australia don't actually do this yet. But coordinator of biometrics for the Australian Federal Police, Dr Nathan Scudder, says it's a technique they hope to use within the next couple of years. Uh, we have missing persons investigations where we have not been able to return individuals to their loved ones. The process here of tracking down these individuals through their family trees could potentially reunite them with their family, bring, bring them home for, for a proper burial, give them their, their name back, and that, that's very important in this space. But don't stress, if you're keen to do your family tree online, police can't just jump in and access your DNA data. You actually need to decide whether you want to give them consent when signing up to an Ancestry website. And the police reckon it's really important to maintain trust when it comes to using the public's data. This is a technique that really is reserved for the most serious of cases. The companies themselves impose restrictions, which basically limit the technique to, um, to murder and sexual assault cases. But we'd be looking to implement our own policies as well to ensure that this technique is only ever used um, for those most serious of matters along with identification of uh, human remains. But Sally says there's a couple of things to keep in mind if you're going to sign up to some of these ancestry sites. The main take-home message is go and have some fun with it, find out about your family tree, but make sure that you read the small print. I mean, it can be pages, but some companies you are opted in to allow the police to come in and use your profile to see if it matches with any crime samples that they've collected from a serious crime scene. Hack on Triple J. Yeah, really interesting stuff there. Thanks, April McLennan, with that story. I want to focus this convo a bit more now and talk about missing persons because it's actually National Missing Persons Week and thousands of people are right now reported missing across the country. It's a huge problem and there aren't enough resources to fully stay on every case all the time. Dr. Sarah Wayland is a senior lecturer at the University of New England. She spent a lot of time looking into trauma, loss, the impacts of missing persons loss on families, and she's with us now. G'day, Sarah. Thanks for coming on, Hack. Not a problem. We've just been hearing about the use of DNA in solving crimes and mysteries and how these huge databases of DNA are being built around the world that could help with that. Is this something that gives the families of missing people a lot of hope? Look, I think that hope is a really kind of teasing journey for a lot of families of missing people because they're hoping for an outcome, but also that can sometimes mean that they're hoping for a negative outcome. So I think that, yes, 
if we look at hope really simplistically, it does give another avenue of potentially answering those questions that they've been asking themselves for a really long time. Yeah, because I can imagine it can also be a bit damaging in some ways too, people becoming obsessed with tracking down evidence, solving mysteries, those sorts of things. Exactly. You know, families have to take on the load of being the long-term member of of someone who's missing. You know, the police do stay connected with families for some sort of decades trying to resolve cases. But ultimately, you know, that that experience and all of the stories around what has happened to the person, all of the mystery that's around, really the onus of my family. We're just having a bit of trouble trouble getting um, Dr. Sarah Wayland there. We might try and get her back now on the line. It's really interesting stuff. And we are hearing from you on the text line about whether you would like to, you know, have your DNA used to solve crimes. Someone on the text line says, hell yes, if they can use this tech to crack a cold case, I'm all for it for sure, definitely. We're going to try and get Dr. Sarah Wayland back. But in the meantime, there's all sorts of programs and stuff that are being launched for National Missing Persons Week. Like, for instance, there's something that's been launched today called Hope Narratives, which is about providing support to the families of people who, you know, have lost someone and, you know, who are struggling um, with that loss. Because it's a really particular kind of loss that people feel when they don't know if their relative or their mate has died. Um, And that's the kind of research that Dr. Sarah Wayland has been looking into. We're going to try and get her back on the line now. Sarah, are you with us? I am. Um, Just having some phone issues. Thanks. (laughs) It happens. It happens from time to time. Um, At any one time, there are so many people reported missing across the country. A lot of them are found or they do come forward, but some don't. I imagine it includes a lot of young people, right? Definitely. I think in the last, the most recent data tells us that in the last three years, missing persons rates have increased by 30%. So in the last year alone, we had 51,000 reports of someone being missing. And about a third of those relate to people under the age of 18. And I imagine I was just mentioning then the loss that people feel as the relative or friend of a missing person is pretty unique, right? It's very different to the loss that comes after someone dies, for example. Definitely. So the term that we use that was coined by an American researcher about 25 years ago is ambiguous loss. So it's a loss with no ending. So, yeah, we talk a lot about, you know, the use of DNA and, and closure, but it, it's always about trying to unravel the mystery associated where the person is. And we're going to have to leave Dr. Sarah Wayland there from the University of New England. Unfortunately, the phone lines, they happen like this sometimes, you know. Um, It's 2022, but phone lines... What the hell? Hack. Definitely some long days in there and uh, some hard work, but at the end of the day, when you see it all come together, it's all worthwhile. On Triple J. Let's move on now. Are you a young farmer? Because a lot of you are. Maybe you fully run your own property, you're lucky enough to have your own piece of land, or it's more likely you work with your family helping them out. I'm wondering if you feel any pressure about taking over the family farm, continuing the tradition, because that's a big conversation. Sometimes there's heaps of expectation that you're going to follow in your family's footsteps, or it's the opposite. Maybe your parents don't want you being a farmer, stressing about the future, and they're telling you, nah, don't do this, go get an office job. 
Well, they're all things that Sam Vincent thought about. He's a young farmer who kind of fell into it after spending a lot of his 20s in the city. Sam's written a book about returning to the land. It's called My Father and Other Animals. Pretty good name. And he's with us now. G'day, Sam. Good to have you on Hack. Hey, thanks for having me. Look, you grew up on the land, but like a lot of other country kids, you weren't fully into farming. And I think some people think that if you grew up on a farm, you're automatically into it, like you're fully across drenching cattle or fencing or the rest of it. That wasn't your experience though, right? Like you became a rider, you had a life in the big smoke, and you didn't really think about farming for most of your young adult life. Not at all. It was very much my dad's thing when I was growing up. Like I did engage with the farm, but but just exploring, building little hideaways and cubbies. And, um, yeah, I moved into Canberra and didn't really think much of, of farming. I definitely wasn't being being prepared to take over the farm. I can't even remember being asked to help out, maybe when I was really little and I probably said I was watching TV or couldn't help and my dad gave up asking me. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I just have no memory of that. And so it was something that I just assumed would always be my parents' domain. Um, I guess like a lot of people, I wasn't very good at, at planning for the future and, and yeah, working out what comes next. Well, then you write about this. Your whole book's about what does happen next. And you say farming families often need a crisis to start a conversation about succession. And when we say succession, we're talking about planning for the future, who's going to take over the family property, right? You got thrown into this in a bit of a dramatic style. Your dad had an accident. He got his hands stuck in a wood chipper. What (laughs) happened there? So he makes a lot of compost and it's it's heavy-duty compost. I'm already cringing thinking about what this story is. Yeah, so he starts by using this big wood chipper and blades got stuck and rather than turn off the engine like a normal person, uh, he thrust a metal bar into the mouth of the chipper to try and free them and it flicked back and broke his thumb in in three places. So my mum rang me and when you get a call from your mum saying that your dad's had an accident, he stuck his hand in a wood chipper. You you kind of expect the worst, but she, she quickly added a qualifier. She said it wasn't like that scene in Fargo. Uh, a lot of listeners might remember that infamous scene in Fargo where um, Steve Bashimi is literally being chucked into the wood chipper. So it wasn't that bad. My dad kept his hand. But I remember thinking, this is this has got to stop. It was only the first of many farming accidents. Yeah, it's kind of interesting because you're an adult and, you know, you've got this whole other life, but then you started what kind of feels like a bit of work experience yeah. <laughs> a couple of days a week and then you start um, what kind of feels like an apprenticeship and you're learning all the stuff that you didn't learn when you were a kid from your dad. Totally. You're starting to learn. I want to know how daunting that was learning farming as an adult. And that's how a lot of farmers learn, right? We have this image that everyone's brought up from a kid understanding everything, but a lot of people do move to the land as adults and they've got to pick up all this information that's passed down, not through books and writing, but uh, through people's experiences. Yeah, and I want to stress that I still feel like I'm I'm a beginner compared to a lot of farmers with my knowledge. But but when I started out, I was completely green. I didn't know how to use fencing strainers or put in a corner post or or vaccinate, mark young calves, castrate bull calves. All this stuff I learnt on the job. 
And I, I just found myself like I had this little notebook in my pocket and I was feeling it with little tips that my dad was giving me and I, I realised that that would actually be the basis of a book. I was, I was curious to learn. At that stage I didn't think I'd become a farmer but anything that could help out dad and I found, found myself starting to really enjoying it and, and, and find satisfaction when I could look at a fence I'd built or, or healthy cattle that I'd helped bring into the world. So yeah, it was a gradual, gradual learning process. You're listening to Hark, I'm Dave Marchese. I'm chatting with Sam Vincent, a young farmer whose new book, My Father and Other Animals, is out now. We're hearing from people on the text line. Someone says, I'm a teacher in a rural school surrounded by farms and I can tell you there is immense pressure in children, mostly boys, in taking over the farm. My students haven't been too excited by that. Yeah, let me know. If you're from a big farming family, do you stress out about taking over the property? Does it make you anxious? Maybe you've decided you don't want to do it at all or like maybe you're a city kid who desperately wants to be a farmer like that's the other side of this as well message in 043975755 we're going to go back to Sam Sam you started helping out your dad how did this chat go with your father like did he want you to follow in his footsteps people assumed that I was I was encouraged to take over the farm, but initially I was discouraged. He wanted me to work in the city. I had a university degree, and I think this is consistent with a lot of farming families. Farming can be really hard work, and uh, and a lot of parents don't want their kids to go through the same same grit that they did. But for me, it was kind of the opposite. I was finding that I was enjoying the work. I, I really wanted to be a journalist and a writer, and I, I feel like maybe if I'd started out down that path a few decades ago, I, I would have gotten a job with a newspaper. But I, I, I dabbled in that a bit and um, daily reporting really wasn't for me. So I knew I wanted to be a writer, but I needed something to support it and, and farming seemed to really complement it. But it wasn't until uh, we decided to make a project for myself on the farm that I, I kind of bought in, I guess. Um, up until that stage, I was helping dad and continuing the legacy that he and my mum had done. But the project that we started for myself was a fig orchard. So starting in 2015, I planted about 100 fig trees and totally covered them with netting and, and started selling them to, to Canberra restaurants when they when they got bigger. And and that's been an important thing for me to, to realise that this, is, this isn't this is my parents' legacy. Sam, in your book you write, farm succession can strengthen families but it can also tear them apart. It's kind of something really bizarre because all farming families have got to talk about it one day but it's often pretty disorganised, chaotic and there's also a lot of old-fashioned traditions and stuff that play into it. Like did you feel more pressure or did you feel any more responsibility than your sister's? for instance, because you're a man. Yeah, I guess it's a bit different for me. I'm the youngest in my family, but I am the only man. I have three sisters uh, and they all moved away to cities when soon after finishing school. I was much closer in Canberra and they've, they've never shown an interest in farming. So I didn't feel pressure from that angle. I would stress that up until 1994 in Australia, you couldn't even list your profession as farmer in the census. If you're a woman, you're a, a farmhand or a, a helper. It's it's really kind of been behind the times in that sense. Uh, when I say that, that succession can tear apart families, I think it's a really tricky thing that family farms often rely on, on everyone to help out. But then when it comes to who takes over... If you're sharing it with siblings, 
there can be different personalities, different ideas of which approach to take and, and that can be a tricky thing. And after all your experiences, the good, the bad, the ugly, everything you've been through and had to learn pretty hard lessons along the way, what would you say to young people listening who are thinking about farming? Would you recommend it as a vocation? Uh, the way I see it is that I'm I'm a custodian for a small part of the earth and that's a great privilege. There's a bit of everything in farming. There's um, mechanics, there's botany, there's animal husbandry. No two days are the same. Uh, when I worked with my dad, he told me the most important part of farming for him was simply paying attention. And I, I think that's that's right. Just wandering around, driving around, walking around your farm, seeing what needs to be done. Um, all different kinds of jobs. I find that really rewarding, especially for someone who might be a bit stuck working in an office and wanting to get out and do something a bit different. Very, very interesting. Sam Vincent, thanks for coming on Hack and sharing your experience with us. My pleasure. Thanks, Dave. Hack on Triple J. And yeah, if you want to read more of Sam's story, his book, My Father and Other Animals, How I Took on the Family Farm, it's out now. Great read. A lot of people messaging in. Someone says, yeah, my brothers have taken over the family farm. They actually walked in on a gold plate. Everything's supplied, even 200K. I don't reckon everyone gets that. Somebody else, my husband and I have taken over our family farm. It's hard work, but really worth it. And another person, I'm not a farmer, but I'd love to learn. And a lot of the skills are transferable to other areas. Well, that could be our next young farmer. You're listening to Hack. I don't know if anyone's told you this or not, baby, but you're fucking amazing. Oh, you like that? Yeah! Mm. Good morning, baby. On Triple J. You know, if I had to reveal the question that I get asked most, it'd probably be, Dave Marchese, why don't you post more thirst traps? I'm joking, that's not a question, which I'm guessing you know. But let's be serious, male thirst traps are everywhere. We're being pretty specific here about male thirst traps because I think we can all agree in 2022, no shortage of men acting horny, winking and shit on TikTok to get more followers. The question is, why is this happening, this kind of peacocking? Is it pretty new for straight men or not? Well, the ABC's got this new pop culture podcast out. It's called Schmeitgeist. And the host, Angela Boispierre, has been looking into it. If your algorithm hasn't already broken the news to you, there is a whole universe of ostensibly straight male thirst traps on socials right now, often directly addressing the young women of TikTok. It might be shirtless lip biting or some vague BDSM stuff. Oh, you like that? Yeah! Maybe a POV where he role-plays the morning after you went home together. Mm. Good morning, baby. Or even a short motivational speech about how you're the most beautiful girl in the world. Hey, baby. I don't know if anyone's told you this or not lately, but you're fucking amazing. Leia Jospi is the admin of a pretty great Instagram account called Fave TikToks 420, where she posts the best and weirdest examples of this trend. All these like young men peacocking to the camera in a way I've kind of never seen before that I always kind of associated with femininity and like growing up as a girl online and stuff like that. By far the strangest subgenre is what she calls inside the actor's studio. They're writing scenarios that have like weird twists. They're trying to act a bit. They're doing like different people in the entire scenarios. Like Calvin Reef also does kind of a similar thing where it's just like the drama is so intense and just like, and he can cry on command. It's honestly very impressive. So I interviewed Calvin Reef. 
I'm Colvin. I'm from South Africa and I'm 21 years old. And, you know, I basically do emotional content and I try and make people cry. 1.8 million people, to be exact. And he makes an okay living off it. Like a lot of bigger TikTok creators, his income comes from a blend of brand partnerships, merch sales and donations. And Calvin's not trying to make thirst traps exactly, but his audience is 85% female, a third are under 18, and a lot of the comments would suggest that plenty of them have a massive crush. But he says that's not what he's going for. He calls his style emotional content. I focus on more um, things that people go through in their lives. Calvin does play every part in his videos. He also cries in most of them. And very few, if any, topics are off limits. Just recently, he's covered bullying, disordered eating, suicidality, grief and addiction. A lot of people reach out to me through my Instagram DMs and, you know, just uh, comments on my TikTok posts asking me to do, like, videos about these type of things and I would reach out to them and ask, what could I actually put in these things? And the reason Calvin Reef gets a mention here is that like the TikTok creators making hard-out thirst traps, he's not reading from the same old script for straight masculinity. So have the rules for men on the internet changed somehow? I would really like to think that. Dr Emily van den Nagel is a social media researcher at Monash University. I'm always optimistic, I think, that there's going to be room for more and more kinds of what counts as being masculine. But I'm not entirely convinced mm. that thirst traps on TikTok and emotional vulnerability is doing the work that we might really need it to. She thinks this shift probably has more to do with the fact that Instagram is structured so that the people seeing your content are more likely to be people you actually know, whereas TikTok is structured so that you're being served up to people all over the world, an algorithmically curated fan base. So in a way, it's giving people a bit of a different audience. But Leia Jospi from Fave TikToks 420 thinks it could be something more than that. You know, the idea of masculinity is changing amongst teenagers in terms of, like, what it means to be male, female, and how to represent that. Because, like, I've asked these kids, I'm like, do you get made fun of, like, at school for posting this? And they're like, no. Listen, my friends know this is, like, kind of embarrassing, but they also see that I'm getting, like, popular from it. So, like, they can't hate because I'm hustling. Hack on Triple J. Angela Boipierre with that story. If you want to hear more, Schmeitgeist, available wherever you get your podcasts. Wow. What are thoughts on this one? Someone says, the cringe. Somebody else says, these people are absolute cringe. Get a real job. Contribute to society. Another person, send me the details of the thirst trap farmers, please. And another person reckons, I am a thirst trap. Hack is one giant thirst trap. Hey, what of it? No, okay, I, I tried, I tried, I tried, I tried. I want to know a bit more about this, talk about it a bit more. If you're laying thirst traps all over the internet, call in, message in, let me know. But someone who I reckon will have some opinions is Lavender Bai, senior reporter with Junkie. Hey, Lavender. Hi, how's it going? Yeah, good. Thirst traps, yes or no? Absolutely, yes. <laughs> what do you love about thirst traps? Do you think this culture is here to stay? I think thirst trap culture is here to stay, but I think what constitutes a thirst trap changes, and I think it's very different for men and women. Right. And I think it evolves with 
culture, which I think is what we're seeing happen with men currently. Yeah, it's interesting, right? Because from one perspective, positive, right? Guys embracing their sexuality, feeling comfortable. But are there other, you know, worrying parts of this as well? Yeah, so I think anything that allows men to be more in touch with who they are and sort of escape the idea of toxic masculinity is a good thing. But I'm not convinced that these thirst traps, especially the TikTok thirst traps, are doing that as much as it's just a bunch of men copy and pasting what some of the really big TikTok influencers like Lil Huddy have done for engagement, basically. I think it's very similar to when we see the in women especially the kardashian stereotype becomes really really popular for a second and we moved from the 2000s ideal thirst trap of being six in to the brazilian like butt lift trend that the kardashians made really famous interesting and i reckon as well there probably needs to be more conversations about the impact of this kind of thing um on guys more broadly like in terms of you know other guys not the ones posting the thirst traps but anyone else looking self-esteem or the rest of it yeah i think that's the interesting thing i think women for a long time we've had conversations and it's far from perfect but i think Traditionally, women have grown up with it. We had magazines, we had reality TV, we had influencers, we've had all the conversations about you don't need to look like a supermodel, you don't need to look like a Victoria's Secret angel, you don't need to look like a Kardashian. And while it's not perfect, we've had those conversations and we've done a bit of the groundwork. Whereas I think for men, it's for a long time, there's been the typical athlete traditional idea of being attractive and nothing else really. But now that there is those other options, I think it is worth having that conversation on the fact that men don't like also don't need to fit into the so-called alternative stereotype that these TikTok thirst traps are promoting. Very interesting stuff. Lavender Vi from Junkie. There's so much to unpack here. Appreciate you um, giving us a bit of insight. Thanks for joining us on Hack. Thanks for having me. Hack on Triple J. Thank you so much for all of your thoughts on male thirst traps. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time.